Hi guys, welcome back to Star Girl. It's Emma. Today is Saturday, March 4th, 2023. Um, I'm very excited today because we are here with a real life Star Girl, Katie Royfe. <laughs> um, Katie is a writer, and I know her because she was my professor at NYU a handful of years ago now. So, welcome. Thank you. So, Today, we're going to be talking about Mary McCarthy, um, who is an American writer, essayist, memoirist, novelist as well. Um, And we haven't talked about that many historical figures thus far. So this is um, a bit different in terms of her time and place and what was transgressive about her then versus a woman who's considered transgressive now, right? So there's a little bit of like... um, transposing that we'll do just like for time but um she is one of my favorite writers and katie introduced me to her and so yeah she's katie's the perfect person to dive into everything that she represents anything you want to say to kick it off no i think she she was just a very complicated figure in her time Mm -hmm. and she inspired a huge amount of admiration jealousy, envy, because she became a writer in at such a different period, she um, started out as kind of the girlfriend. She was dating um, <laughs> Philip Rav, who was one of the founders of the Partisan Review, and they sort of gave her theater reviewing as because like that's what you gave the girlfriend because it wasn't very important. <laughs> and her theater reviews were so charismatic and amazing and she started publishing reviews elsewhere that she rapidly rose to what Time Magazine would eventually call her, I think, the cleverest, maybe the cleverest woman that America has produced. So she became ultra famous. And um, that kind of rise was particularly surprising because she was a woman in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, didn't Norman Mailer call her like the Joan of Arc? Something something <laughs> insane like this. <laughs> um, that one, I don't know. I One thing is... Um, George Plimpton said that Mary McCarthy was as important to his generation as Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So she was um, definitely a looming figure mm-hmm. in that period. And to back up a little bit, so, Mar- I mean, Mary McCarthy wrote like her entire life until she died in what the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say like the 1930s to 60s is like her main period. Well, I would say... Um, that the company she keeps, right. which was her first novel, she had already been writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that novel came out mid-40s, okay. and that was the kind of a big breakout book for her. She was already quite well known as a writer, an essayist, a critic. Um, but it was really that book, The Company She Keeps, which was her first work of fiction that I think really broke through to a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's my favorite of everything I've read. That's also the first thing that you assigned me. So <laughs> yeah, the first story in there, A Cruel and Barbarous Treatment, which I want to talk about. It's like, yeah, blew my mind. Um, but okay, just a little bit more about like her space. So you mentioned the, the Partisan Review. I was wondering if you could just, for those listeners who don't know, talk about the New York intellectuals and kind of, yeah, just the, the social space of that. So I guess the the equivalent would be to think of um, N plus one as it used to be, maybe the drift as it is now, (laughs) a kind of um, not a huge number of readers, but very culturally and intellectually influential. Mm -hmm. 
So the place where Susan Sontag first published mm -hmm. Against Interpretation, that this is a kind of um, very sought after intellectual journal. And so that was the world that she um, quickly kind of moved in. And many of them were communists, no? Or like it became a very anti-Stalinist publication, right? Yeah, there was a there was a big split between the Trotskyites and the anti-Trotskyites and the Stalinists. <laughs> and, they, you know, it was definitely um, left-wing uh, and very um, sort of intellectual, very literary... Um, and that was her, that was her world. And how would you compare her to the other women in that circle? Well, there were very few other women in that mm -hmm. circle. Um, and there were very few women writing for that publication. Uh, and so McCarthy sort of rose to prominence um, as one of the few female voices mm -hmm. um, in that period. And she was known for her sharpness, for a kind of um, funny, sharp, fierce, brutal voice that she established in her criticism. Um, and Susan Sontag once said um, in one of her notebooks, she said, Mary McCarthy can do anything with her smile, even smile with it, which I love because it, it just kind of captures that fear that a lot of people had about her. Mm -hmm. um, Dwight McDonald, who was also in that group of people, said... Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, when, when a pretty girl smiles at you, you usually feel terrific. But when Mary McCarthy smiles at you, you look to see if your fly is open. <laughs> so she was kind of a daunting figure from the beginning. Um, and so she, she really stood out for this kind of um, honest, high-level, brutal critical eye mm -hmm. um, before she started writing her fiction, which she eventually came, became incredibly well known for. Mm -hmm. And But that, like, the brutalness is alive and well in her fiction as well, right? Like, yes. she's very cutting and intense and kind of, like, so many layers of self-awareness um, just in terms of what she observes of people's behavior, I guess. And so um, to the Dwight McDonald quote you shared about like you check to see if your fly is down, like there's something very kind of um, like impish about her or like this evil glint where she's just like, you know, she's picking up on things that one might not even be aware of of their self-presentation and their layers of delusion kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of her intelligence, the form it takes as you're mentioning is satire mm -hmm. so she's a very brilliant satirist as you say she's quite self-conscious so there's a lot of kind of analysis and one of the things I love about her work is that she doesn't she does have this kind of fierce eye where she'll take apart somebody's pretensions and like mm -hmm. you know cut them up into little pieces um but she also does the same to herself so she looks at her own experience and writes extremely critically and satirically about it as well. Um, and, I, and I think that that idea of writing about herself was something she did very early on um, before that was such a common mode. And she also wrote really honestly, and I guess this is what she was really known for about sex at a time when um, that just wasn't okay at all. So she became, you know, in that collection, we were talking about the, the company she keeps, she wrote about a one-night stand on a train. And this was just kind of unheard of for the period, to, for a woman to write about sex. And it's a pretty 
Um, it's a kind of comic, but also unpleasant sexual encounter that she kind of analyzes and, and really examines um, in, on a very high level. And this is just something you did not see. And you especially didn't see it. You saw it in, in male writers, but you did not see that in a woman writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. I had sex as a topic on in my notes. So there's the level of that was not done for a woman to be writing about sex as an act, particularly like casual or extramarital sex, right? But then also the, um, it's so interior, right? And so she's really laying bare all of the kind of um, the the mental in, or the inner dialogue of what's going on with this woman who is like kind of very clearly herself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the like the processes of like decision making or just kind of like tumbling into these like uh, uncomfortable situations. And I think um, I'm curious what you think about this. One read that I have is like, so not only is she like laying bare that these acts happen, but also the kind of like um, manipulative, like almost kind of conniving inner decision making of a woman. And so it comes out looking very bad for, you know, it's like women look very ugly in her stories. Yes, because she also <laughs> talks about her own, uh, and it is herself. She later, and, and she she wrote a book called Intellectual, her intellectual memoirs. Mm-hmm late, late, late in life when she was a very old woman and it kind of became clear. Um, and, and she famously wrote about sleeping with three men in 24 hours um, in this book, but it became clear that this was based on an actual encounter as much of her fiction was based on her own life. And she really um, has some pretty, first of all, she's not at all attracted to the guy and she just kind mm-hmm. of gets super drunk and falls into bed with him, barely remembers it, but also is kind of vain and Well, wants... she's also kind of trying, she's like a huge snob, right? So she's she a meets huge him on the snob. Trade. He's yes. like from Ohio or something and she's like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, do all my dazzling intellectual <laughs> like jousting and, you know, show him. And then she ends up too drunk and sleeping with him and she wakes up and she's just like, oh my God. Yeah, so it's this excruciating <laughs> Thing, but then also then there's a lot of complexity and ambiguity where she ends up like having sex with him again after she's appalled by him and it's a whole it's kind of a grotesque but also like amazingly comic totally sexual encounter and also strangely modern in a way um one of the details that people were really scandalized by at the time is that she talks about having a safety pin in her underwear mm-hmm. because there's a a hole, I guess, which is something that we can't really understand in this era of fast fashion and disposable clothing. But that was considered just like the unbelievably mortifying detail. Um, And I think that her willingness to put all this out there, Mm -hmm. you know, even this really embarrassing detail of having a pin in your underwear, um, really was a very bold act and it Mm. caused people to um really pay attention to it and people loved this book Mm -hmm. um even as she became this controversial figure the book really made an impression because she was speaking so honestly about something people weren't speaking about at all this is kind of a separate point but um 
her stories are so in the material world, right? And so they're they're at once like highly cerebral, but there's so many details that bring things into the immediate and like contribute to kind of the urgency of her ideas. And as you said, the like shock value of them, right? So it's like at once there's all these kind of complicated and um, kind of ugly mind things happening and then there's also very ugly material things like she's holding her underwear together with a pin (laughs) right Right. so it's like it's very um just intense I don't know you talk about like urgency and vividness as such crucial pieces of cultural criticism specifically but I guess writing in general and um I don't know how would you how do you think about her writing in those frames well she's she's great at um uh capturing the material world and finding she writes with these incredible metaphors she talks at one point about how um this man in the brooks brothers shirts personality keeps popping up like a jack-in-the-box you know out (laughs) of her stereotypes of what she's trying to think of him as this like businessman and you know kind of beneath her in all these different ways and not sophisticated needs his personality keeps popping up like a jack-in-the-box and she has all kinds of things like that where She's very, very good at dramatizing mm-hmm. and these kind of internal um, situations. And that's that's one of her gifts. She was criticized by Norman Mailer, um, also by a parody, which we should talk about, by one of her best friends, Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, and for, you know, they kind of accused her of using brands, you know, sort of oh. referring to the, these brands and sort of name dropping brands. So kind of like a lazy. Yeah, almost lazy. as if she yeah. were sort of like Candace Bushnell or something <laughs> um, that she's like somebody's wearing like this brand of shoes and this brand. But part of her doing that um, was that she's looking really closely at the cultural world and she's very good at evoking a certain kind of let's say, woman who went to Vassar um, and what they were wearing and what they bought, you know, what their furniture looked like in their new house. She was very interested in, in evoking a whole world through these external details. And as you say, she was paying attention to these kind of domestic details that other people may not have been. Mm-hmm. To to the brand piece, I guess I... I think that there's like an analogous criticism of writers today, you know, when either it feels name droppy or it just feels kind of like lazy detail work, right? Because you can just kind of slot in or it's the wrong detail. And so it doesn't quite paint the full picture. So I understand that impulse toward that criticism, I guess is what I'm saying. But with Mary McCarthy, like as her writing has aged, it's for me as a reader now, whatever, like 70 years later, it's like I either don't know the brand and so it goes over my head, but I don't really care because she's that actually becomes kind of irrelevant because she's so good at populating the full world. So if I don't get the brand, it's not like, oh, swing and a miss because there's this other, she's just so good at writing characters who are so complex and so surprising um, that their inner world and the material world that they're operating in just feel really lush and, I don't know, apparent, I guess. Good. And I, and I think um, the other thing that you're you're capturing and getting at is that She's combining this close observation of these things like what brand of sweater somebody's wearing with an incredibly sharp insight into why they're acting the way they're acting. And so it's the fact that she's doing this incredibly rich psychological portrait of somebody in combination with 
really intelligently looking at their the things around them. Totally. And it's the fusion of those two that make the production of a kind of Mary McCarthy uh fiction mm-hmm. okay this actually is leading to me i want to talk about the group mm. um but all before we get into the specific like criticism of that book one thing when i talk about star girls it's like there has to be an element of controversy not just to their persona but actually with their work where people really struggle um often with like a highbrow lowbrow thing where they don't quite know what to do with her and she's kind of violating the norms of different genres so yeah, I guess just like what do you think people didn't like about her, both public at large and her peers? Okay, I guess there, just, there are a couple of things I think about that. One is that um, writers were very jealous because the group became a big bestseller. And yeah. she suddenly reached this audience that people like Elizabeth Hardwick and the New York Review of Books crowd was not reaching. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a huge, huge, huge mainstream commercial success. And that was sort of like women all across America. Yeah, women all across America are are reading this book. And that was sort of a violation, especially in this kind of, we've lost this a little bit now, but in this like elitist world of, of, you know, we're, um, you know, reading the brothers Karamazov on our night table kind of world, that was sort of a violation. But also people were jealous. Mm -hmm. So people like Norman Mailer, who very much criticized that book, and people like Elizabeth Hardwick. And Elizabeth Hardwick, who was one of her best friends, she was actually a bridesmaid at Elizabeth Hardwick's wedding, published, yes, published, so she was a bridesmaid. Um, Elizabeth Hardwick published anonymously an unbelievably nasty, scathing parody of the book, of the group, in the New York Review of Books, which obviously Mary McCarthy was quite hurt by and was kind of astonishing. Um, and Elizabeth Hardwick wrote very nastily about her, even though she was one of her best friends. Um, she talked about, she called it, in quotes, her almost violent holding of special opinions. She talked about how McCarthy kind of lacked the impulse that most people have to kind of conform to the kind of opinions that other people have in their world. And she really, um, she talked about McCarthy not needing to be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty... Um, vicious considering there was a kind of sharp edge to her discussions of Mary McCarthy because while she admired her she also obviously kind of resented her and she at one point said she wouldn't be able to get away with these extreme opinions she held if she weren't a very beautiful and b have a very colorful romantic life (laughs) which I think is kind of interesting when you think about the star girl Mm -hmm. phenomenon because Her appearance and also her relationship with so many um, men Mm -hmm. was a part of her public persona and became very much a part of who she was and um, both how she did and didn't get away with things. I mean, both allowed her to say certain things she may not have been able to say because she was this glamorous figure, but also attracted all this rage and jealousy that I don't think she would have attracted without those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, to your point about that being a star girly thing absolutely and I feel like we kind of it's too simplistic to say like oh like beautiful and charming women everyone's jealous of and resents but like we I do like see that a lot right where she just has this magnetism to her that is very um like ends up being very polarizing too well and I think it's the combination of being having that magnetism but also being 
um, so unwilling to express the ideas that, that other people in her time expressed. Oh. So she was kind of, I mean, like especially she's stubborn. She or... was. She had. She was very critical of certain kinds of feminism that mm-hmm. were dominant in the time. She was very critical. Her, um, she was a Trotskyite before that was, you know, when other people weren't. She was, she, she was, she had very strong opinions um, that didn't, that weren't other people's opinions. And she mm-hmm. was doing work that wasn't like other people's work. And, you know, she thought Salinger was a terrible writer. <laughs> like she had strong opinions in lots of different directions that didn't conform to kind of what people like us think. Mm-hmm. And the truth is most people don't have those kind of contrarian views and don't express them very loudly. And so it was a combination of her magnetism with the fact that she just wouldn't say what other people like her were saying. Mm -hmm. And that just, I think that's what irked people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're right. It's too simple to say, oh, she was so beautiful. People were jealous. It's not really that. It was that she was so original and her, her originality was of a kind that it really annoyed people. Mm-hmm. So she was, oh yeah, go ahead. I actually, um, I have a quote. Should I just read it? Yeah, yeah. Um, a quote of hers? Or no, about this is her? a quote Elizabeth Hardwick said about her. There is something puritanical and perplexing in her lack of relaxation, her utter refusal to give an inch of the ground of her own opinion. She cannot conform cannot often like what even her peers like. She's a very odd woman, perhaps oddest of all in the stirring sense of the importance of her own intellectual formulations. Very few women writers can resist the temptation of feminine sensibility. It is there to be used as a crutch. The reliance upon it is expected and generally admired. So that really captures what people were so kind of irked by her. Mm -hmm. That idea that like she cannot conform, she can't hold everyone else's views. And she Uh, also has kind of almost like bad manners. Yeah, it's almost like it's bad manners. And that's, you know, Elizabeth Hardwick's Southern, like she does care about manners and she is kind of saying she has bad manners. Mm -hmm. Trying to get all this attention to herself. Right. Trying to hold these, having so much faith in her intellectual formulations. And, you know, nowadays we think, well, don't we want women to have faith in their own intellectual formulations that does not sound like a negative but she's definitely using that as a negative why Mm -hmm. does she have so much confidence in herself yeah and so it was mary mccarthy's um seizing of a certain kind of authority that was very unusual for a woman that other women in particular really resented okay the seizing of authority is so key and i know we we talk about this in school all the time but like her um yeah, the kind of conviction of her own opinions and the relentlessness of it is kind of um, like there's so much momentum in her prose. I think that that momentum contributes to the authority, but then also the kind of like, wait, who gave you the right or something? Yeah. Um, but then, oh, what was I going to say? Something else about authority. Oh, okay. This kind of is another question I have about the the controversy related to her or the the like how critical even her peers were of her. So my opinion is that because as I've said she is she's writing about politics and social mores but like really through an interior psychological space and a material world, you know, 
domestic life, walking around New York, like very like literal material world things. And so it's not through the same lens that we would, that other of her peers were writing through, which was just like politics, ethics, principles, logic, right? Like all of those things are at play, but not, they're, they're through different vehicles of just like, you know, women's like annoying little brains or something like that. And so my feeling is that a lot of her peers, you know, at once thought that that was kind of like lowbrow and embarrassing and just kind of frivolous, right? That was a big criticism of the group is like, oh, this is just about like materialistic women and their petty lives and the frivolity of it all. But that actually they're threatened because she's able to access this like really deep kind of, I don't know, just like human nature through kind of simpler terms than this like high-minded political or kind of ethical framework. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think so. I think that's true, um, and I also think people were confused because she really set up this persona of um, very early on of sort of a drunken party girl. <laughs> she has an essay called "My Confession" that I think we read, where she talks about having too many drinks at a party and going and trying to like see these important communist figures, and they say something to her, but she's too drunk to like give the right answer and. <laughs> So, and then she hasn't read the news, so somebody asks her something and she gives an answer. And so she presents herself as sort of this, you know, young 20 something person in New York stumbling around. It's kind of a know, mess. Kind yeah. of a mess. And that is very unusual for a woman of that period, in part because it was so hard to be taken seriously. And I think that this is one of the things that really irked people was that she was at the one hand leading this colorful life tons of lovers lots of you know the train one night stand on the train and then on the other hand she had was writing these brilliant essays and was taken very seriously intellectually and people didn't know quite what to do with her I have another quote um, from Simone de Beauvoir who wrote of called Mary McCarthy a quote cold and beautiful novelist who devoured three husbands and a crowd of lovers in the course of a neatly managed career. So that's a pretty scathing idea. She's cold and beautiful. She's devouring these men, but all in the course of a neatly managed career. So kind kind of making it sound like Mary McCarthy is, that idea of her as this kind of cold person who's, um, um, you know, eating these men and that neatly managed career and somehow turning it into this sort of successful um, career. She's totally in control. Mm-hmm. And this like out of control Mary McCarthy stumbling around at parties is a fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that this is, that sort of encapsulates some of the ambivalence about her. Mm-hmm. But it also is very unfair because um, McCarthy did have a quite messy life. Um, and she had in particular her relationship with Edmund Wilson Mm -hmm. was there was domestic violence in that marriage. There was a very ugly divorce. Um, On both sides, she put a piece of paper that was burning on fire under the door of his study. Like they would get into physical fights. Um, There was, you know, a lot of depositions in their divorce where all Mm -hmm. kinds of people testified that he would humiliate her in public And so it was, she wasn't kind of the in control, cold, beautiful person that a lot of people thought she was. There was a sort of fantasy of her as. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, and she was a much more complicated person, as you know from her writing. She represents that in her writing. But I think that idea that she's kind of doing it all for her career, you know, there's some cynical way in which she's just ambitious and trying to like be, live this this sort of messy life just for her career. For sure, yeah. Um, that was always there. Mm-hmm. So sounds like one thing you're saying is like the the chaos that people kind of wanted to write off as like uh, her putting on a show actually was very innate. I think so. And I, and I think she grappled with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what makes the books have a kind of afterlife to them and be powerful is that she really grappled with that on a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the chaos I think we should say is that is the drinking. <laughs> I once like just went through Mar- a night of Mary McCarthy's life and it was like she had two daiquiris before dinner, then she had three Manhattans, then she had wine. And if you just look at what you drank on a normal night in that period, um, it was kind of astonishing. <laughs> So a lot of the chaos, what you're calling chaos, was just, you know, alcohol. Yeah. Just <laughs> alcohol. But, um, but I think she did, um, as she chronicles, she did struggle with her relationships with men. She did um, have a kind of, you know, adventurous, interesting, compelling, but also painful romantic life that – went through a lot of different permutations. Mm -hmm. Um, And she writes very honestly in the company she keeps about the times where she doesn't have a boyfriend and what that's like being um, alone and single as a, you know, what what did that feel like Mm -hmm. in in the 1940s? She writes about that too. Yeah, and the ways that she, I was just reading A Genial Host before coming over here. Um, In that story, she's, that's a time where she's single and how she's still relying on, you know, men that she kind of like looks down on to provide a social life to kind of show her off among like fabulous people. You know, like she, I think she's very, she's so self-aware of all of the like very, it seems to me particularly feminine ways of um, just, just the annoying things that we do to feel like desired to feel like and while still like intelligent while kind of like outsmarting but not too sinister you know so it's just the the mental space that she can access is so kind of like ugly so I can see why that is a turnoff to people because they don't even want to see like that type of character presented but it just feels like so (laughs) true (laughs) I guess and I think there's a an idea she's sort of been written out of a certain kind of feminist history like if you look at um some of the kind of um collections about women writers they kind of downplay mary mccarthy Mm. and it's really i think um terrible because a that scene in the group where she has um it's called Dottie gets a pessary she has her one of her characters gets a diaphragm and then there's a horrible scene where she's like puts it under a park bench in yeah. a paper bag because the person doesn't come. Anyway, the idea of writing about birth control mm-hmm. back then, the fact that she wrote about the, um, you know, one night stand on the train and how frankly she's written about sex and singleness and the and the kind of difficult position a woman is put in because she can't give in to a man's sexual advances, but she can't say no and how impossible that is. She wrote about all that before – 
when we think people started writing about all that, which mm-hmm. is, say, the late 60s and 70s. Right. She was always um, grappling with these issues. People think, oh, you know, Erica Jong revolutionized feminist literature because she wrote um, The Fear of Flying in the 1970s, but, but Mary McCarthy was doing it long before. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it is kind of interesting because this sort of certain kind of feminist canon doesn't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because she didn't want to be known as a woman writer. She yeah. didn't like the idea of that as a kind of, um, you know, she wanted to be known as just a writer. Yeah. Um, and she sort of resisted those efforts um, to put her in that tradition. And, and that tradition definitely um, resisted back. So she's kind of... Um, not you know her work I think is downplayed Mm. um when you look at that that kind of feminist literary history yeah there seems to be like something about her resisting the um the the like ask by society or the literary community or whatever to like understand herself as part of like an underdog, you know, either by her gender or by her politics or anything. She's like so bold and aggressive. Not that she understands herself as a villain, but she's not going to kind of play nice in the way that would make her more relatable or palatable um, to, to that sort of, you know, yeah, and posture, she, I guess. And she also is just resistant to political movements. Mm, yeah. So she didn't <laughs> like the kind of, I mean, she just wasn't ever going to be somebody who was on board with political movements because they were too simplifying. Mm-hmm. And so the political language in which we talk about things would be too easy for her. And she wants to look at things in a much more complex, individual, intimate way. Mm-hmm. And so I think she resisted the simplifying psychology of politics. And so the feminist movement would look at the group and talk about how this is just women who are, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the patriarchy is causing them to be unfulfilled because they don't get jobs like the, right. these all interpretations they do is like all they do their is husband and shop right and, yeah. and so but but mary mccarthy just did not look at things in that simple way and so she just kept kind of falling out of those you know she just was kind of not willing to ever think in that in those kinds of black and white political terms mm-hmm. um and that made her threatening and also i think um her f- her frankness about her own experience and about sexuality and about how women act. I mean, as you pointed out, when she talks about her characters, sometimes they're kind of unsavory. Oh. And they're not victims. No. And they're not necessarily good people. They're acting out of all kinds of base motives, as we all do. And so that in and of itself, she's not creating these feminist heroines. She's not creating these oppressed women who are being driven crazy by the patriarchy. She's creating these really um, conflicted, complicated characters who are not always um, likable. Mm-hmm. And her desire and her kind of consistently doing this again and again and doing it so successfully and having it resonate with so many people, I think was troubling to a certain kind of feminist as well as to, um, you know, other women writers who we've just talked about, somebody like Simone de Beauvoir, somebody like Elizabeth Hardwick. Mm-hmm. And then there's the additional layer of she's so um, 
she's so good at kind of spoofing pretensions, right? So it's like not only is her writing resonant on a mass level because she is, as we've said a million times, like very interior and like tapping into just base motives that like really reflecting very real ways that people behave, which is threatening to anyone who's dealing with just like only theory and like political ideology or whatever but then she can also go one step further to like spoof the pretensions of these people so it's kind of like a you know like a double punch I think. yeah no yeah. and she, and her humor was scary to people Definitely. I mean really her ability to um to kind of go after people's pretensions is part of what made her writing so funny and also what made it so powerful Mm -hmm. and also I feel like her humor points to her being actually very good-natured she seems very fun in comparison to Elizabeth Hardwick Hannah Arendt you know it's like Mary McCarthy actually seems like she's having a a good time thinking about the ways that people operate rather than just like you know getting all perfectly pressed and like talking about capital P politics or something well, and I think she was very um, good at getting inside of really complicated situations because she was willing to criticize herself. She mm-hmm. has an essay where she she's on a train again, a lot of trains, <laughs> um, where she meets this colonel who's anti-Semitic who says these really anti-Semitic things and it's quite disturbing to her. And she sort of talks about her interaction with him and really delves into why is he, how does he think? Mm -hmm. Not just like, oh, he's bad, he's anti-Semitic, but like how does prejudice work inside the mind of this one person? And she also gets at her own, you called her a snob um, earlier, her snobism, her elitism, her sort of desire. She has a Jewish grandmother. She doesn't want to admit it. She's like a little bit, um, she herself occupies such a kind of gray moral territory And it's only because she's willing to put herself out as a character and kind of not a perfect character that she's able to go so deeply into these questions like what makes somebody Mm anti-Semitic. And so there's a kind of profundity to what she's doing that I think relies upon her persona as this incredibly flawed person mm-hmm. yeah that story is so or i actually think it didn't, didn't it really happen to her that it is another one friend? that was yeah. yeah it actually was a non-fiction piece yeah yeah but um it's so great you brought up the detail of how she's like withholding the fact that her grandmother is jewish because she doesn't want to uh like dilute the like sanctity of her ethical argument by like showing her biases and her identity at the same time she's like convinced that the colonel who is anti-semitic is just like only relying on his irishness as the reason that's like you know creating his views so she's like oh well not only am i good but i also come to my ideas in a very like neat logical ethical framework you know and um and then at the end of the story the kind of like twist when he mishears her husband's name or something and thinks thinks it's a jewish name and is like oh well that explains why you're attacking my anti-semitism because you're jewish and she's like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> like it's all you know there's so many layers of people kind of getting their own delusions handed back to them for every character and so it i think even though it is really her writing is various we've said like shrewd and intense um there is a lightness to it because kind of the ways all of the story ends is like yeah and like all humans are kind of morons and okay (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah there's kind of a sweetness in that I think 
And she's really what, like she examines everybody's motives for everything. Okay. As you you use the word self consciousness, but she really looks at. I mean, one of the things that's almost exhausting about her writing sometimes is that she looks at what happens from this unbelievably self conscious point of view, from everybody's motives examined from like fifteen different angles. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because we go really deep into these sometimes like small encounters, common, like mm-hmm. casual encounters. Um, but she also gets a lot out of them because Definitely. we start to get kind of deep into um, very basic questions about how people get along. And I think her snobism is interesting because it is something that she takes up as a kind of bad thing, mm-hmm. but she examines it. But she's also unapologetic about it. Totally. Um, and she is has all kinds of ideas about herself and kind of grandiose ideas about herself that she both punctures and satirizes, but also fundamentally does not apologize for. She believes in it. She you does know? believe in yeah. it. And I think it's that's one of the things that Elizabeth Hardwick was getting at with that quote of like, she just won't give in. You know, yes. she won't. She doesn't apologize. And I think that there's a way in which that just is disturbing, mm-hmm. especially t- in that generation of writers, that mm-hmm. she's not willing to accommodate. She's not willing. Hardwick talks about that feminine sensibility, and that's really just she's not willing to say the thing you need to say to make people like you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And she just isn't. She doesn't. She's not she never budge. does. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that – Like, it is annoying when artists of any kind are being just, like, intentionally provocative just for the sake of it, just to ruffle feathers, right? And so I almost feel like people wanted to be able to write off Mary McCarthy as that, as, like, oh, she's just, like, a needless provocateur, but she's so good, and as I said, she actually has so much belief in what she's saying that, like, it's impossible to prove that she's just trying to provoke. Yeah, and she also was very um, intellectually... Um, accomplished. So, Mm -hmm. you know, she wrote um, really great critical essays about the nature of fiction. She wrote about politics. She wrote her fiction. She had an incredible range. She did many different things. And she did them all on a very high level. So again, it was kind of hard to, you know, people were trying to dismiss her some of this work as kind of insubstantial, as you say, sort of frothy. Mm -hmm. But that was just impossible because of how intellectually accomplished she was in her work look at any one sentence that you know it's so chock full of yeah just so many layers of perception and um wait hold on I have a couple specific questions oh okay well one thing this kind of is related when I talk about a star girl I often say that it's someone who like violates the public's stated values or stated manners but who were nonetheless drawn to so do you feel like there was an element of that with her definitely I mean she obviously with the things she topics she chose you know with starting with the safety pin and the underwear (laughs) um but even before that just the um you know, attacking Salinger, for instance. Like, these things are her not being willing to say the thing you're supposed to say, to hold Mm -hmm. the opinion that you're supposed to hold. Um, And she always was doing that. She was always coming right up against what was the sort of manners of the time, what Mm -hmm. was acceptable to write about or discuss. And she did that from a very early age. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the same time, obviously, people were drawn to her, and obviously, people were reading her work. Um, She was, you know, probably the most famous woman and writer in America for a very long stretch of time. 
And so she she did have both those things. Mm-hmm. And I think she did kind of irritate people on a very, you know, with this sort of intensity. Mm-hmm. But she also, they were watching her. They were obsessed with her. They were paying attention to her. And it was definitely both those things. Yeah. Well, and another point you already said, but like the the threat about her being resonant to people outside of her specific like intellectual circle right and so I think I mean I think this plays out all the time today too right like when you have these intellectual communities in New York and then suddenly somebody gets like the attention of a totally unrelated crowd and it's like the there's an impulse to dismiss it because it's like oh well no that's just like that's lowbrow or that's like that's not in this specific milieu. She's not, you know, we can jettison her. But then it's ultimately really threatening because it's like, oh, she has power beyond this tiny little insular circle. So. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think you could compare it to somebody like Sally Rooney today. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, I think Mary McCarthy is a greater writer and thinker. But um, I think that phenomenon of um, somebody just having a reach beyond what seems logical for them people regard that with sort of inherent hostility Mm -hmm. different medium but I think Lena Dunham is very similar to her in that way too where um when you look at like Lena Dunham's work that's on HBO that's like one of the most popular shows ever but it's actually so rigorous and layered it's like wait how first of all how did this get on here and how is this resonating with masses in America when we thought it was just our specific little artistic circle in New York who would get it and it's like you know so anyways another thing that I was going to ask you when we were talking about her kind of self-consciousness is do you think that she is self-deprecating or something else um I think she is self-deprecating because I think that she often is very clear about limits in her own um you know like control having sort of bad motives for why she does certain things Mm -hmm. um in the story that you mentioned before cruel and barbarous treatment it's another one of these autobiographical projections but her main character is behaves terribly is very morally suspect um has does things out of the worst motives in the world is basically um she she's having an affair and she's just contemplating like how wonderful and glamorous it's going to be when her husband is at the same party as her lover and what's that you know she's sort of and the drama of breaking it to yeah the drama and and she's sort of rejoicing in this horrible situation and so I think she is self-deprecating she's definitely criticizing herself she's also kind of um uh celebrating the this person who's kind of got all these terrible motives so it's it's a really complicated thing she's doing with that character Mm -hmm. and so I I don't know if you could say she's totally self-deprecating but I do think she's very very fiercely Mm self-critical and that you especially see in her straight autobiographical writings she's extremely critical of herself she's critical of memory she's critical of like what we our fantasies about the past and how they're wrong Mm -hmm. um and so I think she is pretty rigorously self-critical yeah I feel there's as you've been saying like um she's very fierce right and so there's like a I don't know just an energy that her 
self-criticality takes that is much more admirable to me than the way we usually self see self-deprecation in in writing and in art in general like I think that there's just yeah there's more energy and kind of like forward movement and as we said she's um refuses to understand herself as a victim of circumstance in any way so it's not kind of like shrugging your shoulders like oh poor me or like oh like stupid old me or something I don't know there's just a layer like beyond that that I respect more even as just like a persona and I think you're right I mean in all of her writing she does refuse to see herself as a victim and that's a huge strain where especially because she writes so much about men and sex and sexual encounters and often some sexual encounters that are kind of dodgy Mm -hmm. in various ways (laughs) and she really um does not view herself as a victim. And even though sometimes bad things happen to her characters or to her, mm-hmm. she um, is very clear about her own agency and her own um, participation in things and how she's reacting or causing certain situations. So she's 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 just not interested in those kinds of um, victim narratives yeah totally she has a tremendous <clears throat> amount of personal responsibility and it seems like she's just much more interested in diving into the psychology of what would make one act this way rather than what are the structures and powers that be that are like producing this social situation although I think at the same time she does create a pretty um uh advanced and modern portrait of the difficulty it is to be a woman Mm. um operating in those times and kind of especially a single woman Mm -hmm. um and so she so strangely i think she does give us a sense of those systemic like prejudices and Mm -hmm. the ways in which these inequalities work in a larger sense but only as she measures a very complicated person navigating that. Like she's creating situations that reflect those things, but she's not coming in and saying like, okay, now we're talking about class. Now we're talking about gender. Um, Oh, this is kind of random, but one thing when I was rereading her this over the past couple of weeks, almost every man that she encounters who's not like an intellectual peer of hers is described as like old, fat, and pink. It's like so hilarious. And like nothing more needs to be said. Um, Okay, well, did you ever read the essay Raporva wrote about the group? I did. did. Basically, she's she's talking about like the, the criticism that it received, some of which we've talked about of it just being kind of like a frivolous, materialistic book about women and like, you know, failing to like recognize the patriarchy and whatever. Anyways, but Apoorva has talks about it as a social novel and she's kind of comparing it to recent popular novels of the time, like My Year of Rest and Relaxation, for example, and um, kind of the internet novel as a genre at large and talking about how the the social world and populating a novel with the material world and actually people navigating it rather than just their kind of cerebral world is something that we're kind of lacking in modern fiction that there's a tendency to just over index on the cerebral or the like the the theory and the like political frameworks rather than like dive into what it feels like to be here now um I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people have tried to re- recreate the group. Like, there's mm. sort of, like, some imitations of the group. Um, Claire Massoud has an actually great novel. I can't remember what it was called. 
But it was sort of about a group of, I think, brown graduates coming to New York. Even Hanya Yanagihara's book Mm -hmm. is like also about this, you know, group of college friends and then they come to, you know, succeed in life. And how does that work? I think it's it's kind of a genre that people have reproduced Mm -hmm. um, in the past. So I think people sometimes try to do it. It's hard to do it well. And it's hard to capture all the different trends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think people have tried to do like a novel set in Brooklyn where you get all the parenting trends. Or, yeah. You know, I yeah. think this is, I don't really see that people, I guess I don't agree. Okay. I don't really yeah. see that people are not trying to do that thing. I just don't think it's very hard to do it. She does it on a kind of big level mm-hmm. of capturing all these different things. Um, you know, Updike definitely did it. Lots of writers have done it. So I, I guess I think I think people continue to try to do that, and they have always tried to do that. I don't think that novel was unusual in that respect. Okay. Either. It was just really good. I and... think it was just a really good at doing what it was trying to do. And also I think that that idea of, like, the group of college friends and then what happens to them just became is, was a kind of good premise as a way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and just following. I mean, Jeff Eugenides has done, like, so many writers have done that now. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure I could think of more if I just spent five minutes on it. But there's, that is a kind of common um, premise. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, like, what makes you teach her, like, year after year? Um. I think she is an incredible stylist and that she has a lot to offer in terms of just teaching writing Mm -hmm. and in terms of cultural observation. She's really unmatched. And so there are a lot of things that I like to teach her for. I think that she opens a lot of doors if you look at her writing in terms of how... um, to really dive into the psychology of a given situation. Mm -hmm. And so I teach her for all those reasons. I also do teach her because I don't feel like my students are encountering her work Mm -hmm. um, in college, say, or Mm -hmm. in other parts of their life. So I don't really think Mary McCarthy is very well read. Um, And so, you know, when we hear how important she was in the past, it's kind of she becomes a historical figure. Mm And so, and and more than other more, you know, writers like Susan Sontag or Joan Didion or even Elizabeth Hardwick we're hearing more about now. I feel yeah. like Mary McCarthy actually is not getting that same kind of attention. And why do you think that is? I think maybe a little bit because of these reasons <laughs> that you're talking about. Because I don't know if you've discussed this in, in general, but I think um, the star girl sometimes gets... Uh, kind of um, buried a little bit by mm. history because these ways in which she's provoking and maddening and irritating people mean that she's not taught in the, you know, women writers class, you know, mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. that. It sort of causes people to look away from her work and her accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or things that she actually like paved the way for didn't get the kind of cultural go-ahead until you know several iterations later and then that person is taught or something like that yeah I mean I think people know a lot more about you know the fear of flying and Erica Mm -hmm. Jong um as this kind of 
early writer who wrote about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I, I do think it gets, that's part of, I do like to correct some of those um, omissions in uh, higher education. <laughs> that's great. Um, we didn't so much talk about it and maybe there's nothing to say, but I think her friendship with Hannah Arendt <clears throat> is like, you know, kind of endlessly interesting to people. And there's that book about their friendship. I'm forgetting the name of it. But um I guess when I first learned that, that seemed odd to me because they're so, they seem like diametrically opposed in kind of, if not like uh, uh, opinions about the world, just kind of sensibilities, I guess. Like I think of Mary McCarthy as such a just like force and Hannah is much more like, I don't know, observing and perceiving or something. Well, I think um, one thing is Hannah Arendt was probably not threatened by Mary McCarthy's yeah. confidence. She had her own really strong kind of intellectual position on things. She was herself not afraid of being contrarian. Totally. And, and totally um, different projects. And in really yeah. different realms. So I think that there may have been, you know, there was sort of a natural intellectual affinity, but there was probably less competitive energy between them than um, – say other kind of people like Elizabeth Hardwick who's also trying to write novels who's kind of more in the same space yeah yeah Elizabeth Hardwick is such an interesting character in general we I just read um Seduction and Betrayal last fall and so that in some ways is kind of it's kind of a star girly project right because each essay is about like uh a woman who like captures our attention right and just the way that Elizabeth Hardwick writes at least in that and obviously her like personal life was like in total shambles so like that that kind of projection is very obvious but it's she just seems so endlessly like jealous and kind of like seeking of others and I don't mean that to say like I mean, that, that's an experience that I can be empathetic toward, but in terms of magnetizing people to you, like that's not really ever going to do it in the same way where Mary McCarthy's just like boldness, tenacity, and kind of just like a deep belief in herself is, even if it might be maddening to people. Yes. Um, I, Elizabeth Hardick wrote an essay in her Uncollected Essays that's recently been published where she talks about how she has difficulty reading other women writers because she and she does talk about the kind of competitiveness they mm-hmm. evoke in her and how she almost can't read Focus. them fairly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's really extreme for a woman critic to write that, you know, to sort of say that. And I guess um, in some sense one admires the, her honesty about that. But mm-hmm. I think that level of, like, competitive rage surrounding other successful women um, would be an obstacle yeah, um, definitely. In, in a friendship like that. And, I, I mean, speaking of seduction and betrayal, I think – that writing that parody of the group when that was her, you know, bridesmaid at her wedding was just like a huge betrayal. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And she was also really competitive. She has this other introduction she wrote about Mary McCarthy where she talks about how Mary McCarthy doesn't have any labor-saving devices in her kitchen and how she's like such a – she would cook, you know, like two different kinds of, you know, uh, stuffing at Thanksgiving, the oyster stuffing and the chestnut stuffing – and she talks about her domestic kind of accomplishments, her as a hostess, in this almost competitive way. You know, as if and, – and it is, does sort of sound like Mary McCarthy also viewed um, kind of hostessing in this sort of like alpha kind of scary way, frankly. <laughs> but um, 
that idea of just like, you know, she couldn't even let Mary McCarthy make her blueberry pancakes without it kind of arousing this sort of strange competitive atmosphere. Totally. Yeah, there seems to be like this fundamental um, issue with her own station, you know, so that like anything that she encounters, any woman she encounters is like a threat to her spot, you know, and again, not to pathologize that, like we've all been like taken over by jealousy at different points, but I just, it doesn't make her, the persona that comes through in her writing as electric and as Mary's. But I also think when you think about the Stargirl phenomenon, Mm -hmm. you notice that this Elizabeth Hardwick feeling, which she kind of is very, to her credit, quite honest about, and other people are less honest about it, is a little bit at work in just general responses toward Mary McCarthy and Mm. in the public responses toward Mary McCarthy. And that, you know, she's kind of overt about it in certain ways. But, um, But I think that that same feeling that we're talking about here um, is a part of this response to her that is both admiring but also kind of repelled by her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I don't know if this is what you were getting at, but like for for every Mary McCarthy, there's an Elizabeth Hardwick character, right? And that actually is like a critical part of whatever, the Stargirl universe or just like social worlds, right? Where there's like, there's someone that's generating conversation and again like magnetizing and repelling people and then there's people commenting on it and like we you know part of the way that we see Mary McCarthy's legacy play out is in those people who were really um who she affected really strongly and so I don't know it's all it's all cool like it's all necessary (laughs) um okay well we've been recording for over an hour I don't have we actually got to like oh, everything good. that I covered everything. We yeah. Wait, I forgot. I forgot one of her smile quotes though. How it's amazing how many Can smile quotes there it? are. I, I know there are a lot of smile quotes. Well, she had a very, I guess she had a really good smile. Mm-hmm. But she also kind of had a like a snaggle tooth a little bit. Yeah, she. But it kind of <laughs> like um right. It was like a. But it was part of her charm, char- personality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um. Randall Jarrell wrote, I'm going to paraphrase this because I otherwise will mangle it, but Randall Jarrell wrote a character who was based on Mary McCarthy in one of his novels, a campus novel, Pictures from an Institution. And he says, um, torn animals were removed at sunset from that smile, which is maybe the best it's, Mary McCarthy smile it's quote. so good. But just that level of how afraid people were of her and how this kind of... Um, Almost this this sort of, it's sort of a like eroticized fear of mm. Mary McCarthy, I think is really operates quite widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea that she's somehow like devouring, it's the same as, you know, Simone de Beauvoir talking about her devouring the husbands, like the idea that she's like eating men. I mean, it's almost this sort of like mythical Oh, totally. Um, view of this sharp, powerful woman. Totally. It's like her as a lioness or something. Just like, yeah. It's so good. Thank you. <laughs> um, any lasting things on her? No, I think that's that's it. But I do hope people um, go back and read The Company She Keeps. At the very least. Yeah. Wait, actually, At one the very more thing. Least. Do you, like, was she an inspiration for any of your writing? Like, um. Definitely, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember 
one of my um when my first book came out some a reviewer wrote a contrarian voice a la mary mccarthy and i was very that was sort of one of my favorite things Mm -hmm. um that anyone's ever said about my work because um i do hold her as a model totally cool okay well thank you so much katie for your time and for sharing yeah um thank you Sorry, I right. forgot we weren't in an actual conversation. <laughs> no, no. That, well, that's great. Um, okay. Uh, all right. Bye, guys. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, not bye. Hi again. Um, you guys, we are so fortunate to have gotten to hear from Katie directly. Um, if you're not familiar with Katie's work um, or her as a figure, uh, she's a big deal. And it's so awesome that we got to hear from her directly on a subject she's so knowledgeable about and on someone who is like such a natural subject for for star girl so um yeah i hope i hope that you enjoyed it um also wanted to direct you to some of her other work so katie has written i believe seven books um the most recent of which is called the power notebooks that came out in 2020 so that's a good place to start just because it's very uh recent <laughs> it's a the most like near history persona that you can get of hers but um all of them are wonderful um i'm also going to link my maybe favorite essay of hers um it's called the naked and the conflicted um it's kind of about the passing of the torch from the like mid-century kind of great male novelist to um the popular novelist of the like 90s and 2000s and um talking about how they each deal with sex and how the latter while perhaps more PC and maybe even feminist um they're actually still like raging misogynist and on top of that they don't even seem sexy (laughs) so um it's it's a wonderful essay um yes and and Katie uh teaches at NYU I think I said that she um she's the director of the cultural reporting and criticism program so um yeah Anyways, um, thank you all for listening. As always, I hope you have a great start to the new month and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.